Hello, 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 and welcome back to an all-new episode of The Darius Show. For today's episode, we're going to be breaking down and talking about Netflix's newest series, The Sandman. This is a fantasy series, a fantasy drama series, I would say. It's based off the comic books that was released in the late 90s. And I will say this is one of the weirder shows I've dived into, given its eerie slash fantasy tone. We'll get into all of that, of course. That being said, I found myself enjoying this one, and there's definitely some profound moments, even though it is perhaps the most bizarre series I've watched in recent memory. But yeah, uh, let's go ahead and roll the intro and get right into it. We are talking about The Sandman. It's the Darius Show, y'all already know. Drop your booty to the floor, come give me some more. It's the Darius Show. So in the universe that this story takes place in, the the major, the larger parts of the human experience are personified into physical beings that dictate and control these parts of human experience. For example, death. Uh, death is a character that's been depicted many times. Death is a character in the series. All these characters are part of a larger family referred to as the endless. There's desire. They refer to all sorts of other behaviors and uh, traits of humanity that are these different characters. But in the case of our main character, that is Dream. Uh, his name is literally Dream. He's the Sandman. He is, uh, he is the person, he's the Lord of the Dream Realm where everybody goes while they sleep. And you would think that that's a insignificant aspect of the human life to be controlling. But this series makes a case that dreaming is probably the most important thing that we experience in the human experience. Uh, it is where where all humans spend a third of their life is in the realm of the sleeping. And in a greater sense, they do make a pretty poignant argument for uh, dreams as a, as a more ethereal concept. Anything that you aspire and hope towards being the most powerful thing that humanity can control, especially when humans have a shared dream that becomes their future reality i mean that is the how history goes you know but so yeah that's an interesting little concept that they dive into but let's get into the plot what is this series about so the series picks up where dream his name is dream i'm going to be referring to him that way throughout this discussion dream actually gets captured by a group of humans and he's held there in captivity for a hundred years over a hundred years and that's kind of where the main plot kicks off is seeing the whole first episode you see him being captured and how that play how he how it plays out being captured for that hundred years and then you see him kind of break out in the last mo- in the last moment there of the episode and so you're playing with you know when dream returns to the dream realm how have things progressed how have things gone crazy in his absence without him there to rule it and it's mainly him picking up the pieces of uh, the broken time after all of that. Now, one thing that was compelling was this opening episode. It felt like I was watching a fairy tale. Really, they don't spoon-feed you information. They really just dive you into this very intense, you know, fantasy world. As far as fantasy goes and, you know, anime, whatever kind of storytelling I might cover on on this podcast, this is definitely one of the more out there ones. But they just drop you in, act like everything's normal, and they expect you to catch up. And for the most part, that works. I will say I was a little whiplash just jumping into it. I was like, okay, this is very aggressive in tone. And even the main character who plays Dream, I was not sold on him at first. He has a very detached uh, nature approach to this role. 
He's, you know, often staring into the distance, very cold, very brooding and very emo. But I found myself as we were able to really explore his character and the, the different nuances of his character. I definitely liked him a lot by the end. His hair and his look is still a little bit to get over. It's like just a little ridiculous. But overall, Dream is definitely a cool character. And the actor who brought him to life did a fantastic job committing to that role. Tom Sturridge is the name of the actor who plays Dream. And I know this is going to be a hard series to talk about. There's 11 episodes. They're all about an hour each. And I got to say, this thing is packed with plot. But before I dive into the more uh, greater details, I do want to talk about something that I that I read as a criticism for this series. Now, I know that this is doing its best to adapt a comic book series, so I will give it a little bit of grace for that. Obviously, it wants to fill out like a 10-episode order, kind of the Netflix typical. And generally speaking, with media that comes out nowadays, you do want some lengthier seasons to really dive into plot. Now, where this is a shortcoming in this series is that there's like two major arcs that happen. There's the first arc and then there's the second arc. It's literally split into two different parts. It often feels like you're watching two different seasons. Now, did I enjoy those individual parts? I absolutely did. I found the antagonist for them to be very compelling. Um, the characters involved and the actors involved with playing those characters brought them to life excellently. And I was compelled the whole time. But there's just such a disjointed nature because the two plot lines almost have nothing to do with each other. Now, the first plot line that we're dealing with is all about the Burgess family. So the the, Bur the head of the Burgess family is who captured Dream to begin with in episode one, held him there for 100 years. And essentially what you're dealing with is a plot line that follows generations. And you're dealing with the youngest of this generation, Charles, excuse me, Roderick Burgess. And he... He's, the, he's kind of the main antagonist for that first part. He's someone who's been in a psychiatric ward for 30 years. Uh, and now when we meet him in, in modern day, Dream is just trying to get his items back from this individual who seems to have inherited it from, his, uh, from Dream's previous captor. Now, this is just the different tools that Dream uses to wield his power. The whole first half is about Dream recollecting its tools that have been lost from him over the course of that first hundred years. We're meeting different characters like Constantine, who is like this badass, like, what's the word? Exorcist, I guess. She's she's a cool character, but we meet her and we pretty much just move right past from her. So we don't do much with that character for too long. But again, Roderick Burgess, he has this dream of essentially removing everybody's inhibitions and removing. Uh, basically, he wants to live in a world where everybody tells the truth all of the time. And that's his that's his main goal. That's why he's holding on to the ruby that he's taken from Dream. And that's what makes him a main antagonist. Now, there's a excellent episode. I have to say this is probably I don't know. There's two episodes that I really love out of the series that really stand above the rest. And one of them come from the point of view of Roderick Burgess. And this episode, this is like a seminal episode. It all takes place in a diner. And he for for his part, he's really not doing many speaking lines in this episode he's but a bystander a viewer in this in this diner and essentially you're getting introduced to all the different characters in the diner um and this whole every character that you meet in this episode does not you don't meet them again past this episode so i actually have to really give kudos to all the actors that were present in this episode because they made such a strong impact they you know immediately you got a sense for all these characters how they live and breathe and work together that there, this is a community of people that interact with each other on a regular basis. You really get a sense of that. 
and all the different ways that their stories intertwine with each other and seeing this drama unfold once their inhibitions are gone. Once, you know, he uses the ruby to make it to where nobody lies. It's like radical truth the whole time. And as you'd imagine, it progresses into everybody fucking each other and then eventually killing each other and, or killing themselves. Um, yeah, once everyone's just acting upon base desire, uh, that's a world that is pretty chaotic overall. And that's kind of his goal. That's what he sets up to do here. Um, you know, the way that they play it out, it's it's reminiscent of like a drama play, perhaps. You know, the way that they quickly download all this information to you about all the different people. Um, seeing it all play out, it obviously crescendos into utter chaos. And then that's when Dream steps in and we get the climactic battle between him and Dream. Uh, it ends, you know, I will say the way that Dream overcomes the scenario was a little bit lackluster. Um, I mean, it pacing-wise, it didn't feel off, but it, the Burgess character was a very compelling one, especially the way that he carried himself. The actor for him was quite terrifying every time he was on screen and very unstable at that. But the way that they overcome the situation, it's really that Burgess undid himself. He he made a move that was ultimately his own damning. And so that was just a little unsatisfying. I wanted to see more of an active role from Dream. He tends to show up into these situations and doesn't do much to do the outsmarting himself. The situations kind of just end up solving themselves. And that happens in the second climax of the series as well. That being said, I'm willing to trade the fact that this didn't have like an amazing ending to the plot. Because watching the whole diner scene take place and unfold was like a masterclass. I actually feel like this is like a great episode of television. Like even just in a vacuum, you could watch this and study it and enjoy it without any context of the rest of the series. Now, another episode I loved with all my heart was actually like it was like a palate cleanser episode in between the two major plots. This one follows Dream all the way back in like, I guess, like 600 years into the past when he he's always been this brooding character. Right. And the, I will say that they do give Dream a character arc throughout the series to follow. And that's that he's always he, he's a good character. His character is always serving towards humanity and pro humanity, though his character in its in of itself is not enjoying himself. He is very brooding all the time. He's kind of a dick. He's not very like tapped into his emotions or able to, you know, deal with other people's emotions. So this episode opens up that I think it's literally the middle episode of the run. There's 11 episodes in the series. And I think this is episode six. And he's hanging out with death, his sister, who is presented to be the most sweetest character, by the way. She's like absolutely the biggest sweetheart of the series. Uh, interesting route to go with death. Um, but he's hanging out with her and she's kind of teaching him that, um, there's more to humanity than, uh, than what you can really imagine. And there's actually two episodes that we spend with her. One is following her while she's sending people off to die throughout the episode. And that, that was a fun episode exploring death and of its, of herself, but that's not the one I'm talking about. The one I'm talking about is one that takes place significantly in the past and, Death and him end up making a bet with somebody who's there in the tavern at the time saying that if, you know, basically uh, they award this gentleman eternal life. And the deal is they just have to meet up every hundred years to discuss what it's like to live this long. Um, Dream at the time is under the assumption that this guy will be begging for death within a century, that nobody should live that long and it would be tortured to do so. Easy assumption to think of considering, you know, 
uh, you outlive everyone you know and love uh, many times over in this scenario. But seeing the meetup, so that that's the setup for the episode, and then the rest of the episode is seeing their different encounters over the course of every hundred years. Such an interesting episode. This is another one that could exist in a vacuum. You know, you could release this as just a short film, and it would be a compelling one to watch. Seeing not only the different nuances of how this character presents himself and dresses and the different landscape around every hundred years. That's super interesting just from a viewer's point of view. Uh, getting, you know, getting to flash through the different periods of history was super entertaining. Just just seeing those differences and how they're presented within the tavern turned bar by the end of it, you know. Um, but what was really interesting was the discussion that they have in term of in terms of what this individual's experience is. And what they map out for what an individual's experience would be over the course of 500, 600 years, I actually think is pretty fitting. You know, we see someone who becomes at first super successful. He, he follows an arc of being modestly, you know, a regular average Joe when we first meet him. And, you know, come 300 years later, he's wildly successful. And I do think anyone who has had that much time on the earth to establish wealth, uh, create connections, do this, this, and that, I do think that would be very um, easy to assume that you would come into a lot of wealth. Now, that being said, uh, once we get to year 400, he has lost all his wealth. He's essentially a homeless person. He spent a century suffering, and that likely would happen as well. At this point, he uh, he tragically lost his wife and child, not to old age, but due to certain circumstances. And he's you know, I'd imagine uh, as an individual who has lived through and lost so many loved ones at this point, doesn't have anyone to consider close in his life. That's why he's really hit rock bottom. Of course, he picks him. He picks himself up by from that by year five hundred, and then what we get into is a very interesting conversation of because uh, this shines a light on dream and said other individual. I forget his name at the moment. Oh, that's annoying. But they they really start to talk about friendship. And you, you this is our first glimpse into Dream as a character in terms of his emotional state. We've seen him and he's to this point, he's done a good job entertaining on screen. But we haven't really broken into the layers that make Dream Dream. And I think that this was excellently put in the middle of the of the run of episodes here. Not, now, I still think that the storytelling overall was a little disjointed of the, the jarring different stories that we see throughout the season. But putting this here was an excellent way uh, to kind of check in with the character Dream and start to give the audience questions about his emotional state. Does this guy have friends? Does this guy like connect to people? And that's the question that gets called into fire here. And at first, Dream is actually really offended by the accusation. And he actually can't meet, make it to their next meeting because this is when he was captured. As I mentioned at the top of this conversation, he wasn't able to attend their their every hundred year meeting. And I think that in his absence, because he wasn't able to, because Dream spent this time completely in captivity, it made him realize that he does need friends and that he did really look forward to that meeting every year. So the next time that he finally sees him, he refers to him as a friend. And the catharsis that we get in that moment was really great. I actually would like to see this character more. It doesn't seem like they're going to use him again. Um, I think that it is, you know, in a vacuum, the story that they told with that character was amazing. So we don't necessarily need to see him again. Uh, that being said, he had so much charisma and there was so much there that I would love to see him get brought into the fold a little bit. Someone who's been alive for 
at least 600 years now. I'm not quite sure on the, where the timeline falls there. Uh, but for someone who's been alive for so long, I'm sure that he has some wisdom with him and has some ability to help dream out uh, with navigating his scenarios in some way, shape, or form. Now, before I dive into the latter half of the season that where the whole second story takes place, because that's pretty much going to dominate the conversation of the rest of this, there are some characters I want to touch on that uh, shine in this first half and continue to do so in the second half, but aren't necessarily integral to the second plot. Lucienne, she is the bookkeeper slash most loyal servant subject of the dream world. Uh, she's basically been waiting and holding out hope that dream would return someday. And by the in his absence, she's kind of been running the whole dream world. Someone had to step up, and she, being as loyal as she is, has done so with grace and humility. Um, you know, halfway through the series, they start they start to play with her character a little bit. You know, people respect her within the community, and she's much more um, has mu- uh, has a much stronger, better, stronger ability to empathize with people and empathize with dreams as well. And so she has this emotional awareness to really make the citizens of their land feel more comfortable so people naturally kind of look to her more so as a leader especially in the absence of dream even though she doesn't necessarily have the same power level so they play with her being a little bit disgruntled her being a little bit overlooked by dream but by the end of the series they do tie it all back together i do think the actress for lucienne did a really good job she doesn't get much she doesn't get much range to play with her character is always one note she's She's always very poignant. She's standing there and poised, and she doesn't get the opportunity to inflict a lot of different emotion. Now, she does do a really good job of like communicating some emotional state that she's holding back. Like You do see that layer a little bit through her, but in terms of what she actually gets to act out, she is a very one-note character. Her one note, I will say she presents almost to damn near perfection. Like She doesn't really stumble at any point. But I do wish that they maybe allowed the actress to display a wider range of emotion. Now, Matthew is a Raven character. This is played by Patton Oswalt. So he's he's basically Dream's new Raven. Uh, Reluctant at first, but uh, certainly a very full-fledged member of the team. Now, he just ends up being relegated to a quippy guy towards the towards the end of the season in the first couple episodes when he's introduced and he's kind of demonstrating his value to dream and showing like why he deserves to kind of be around he i do think he's a super cool character at that point that being said as the season goes by and there's some bigger plots happening some more important things happening on screen he gets pretty boring and just left to the background Patton oswald as a voice actor always does a fantastic job I actually appreciate that this was a little bit more dialed in of a performance than what we usually see out of him. The second I heard Patton Oswalt's voice, I was like, okay, this is going to take me out of it. Because I, I haven't recognized any of the actors here. These aren't, you know, at least from my perception, these aren't big actors that are taking up these roles. And overall, the tone and presentation of this series is very, like, muted in general. It's very, It's a very, like, detached world that they're presenting. So as soon as I heard Patton Oswalt, I was like, okay, that's a little ridiculous. Like, you know, I don't know. Patton Oswalt's just such a specific tone and he's such a comedy guy that I thought it would take me out of it, but it did not at all. You know, I think he, he did an excellent job. <laughs> I just loved him in the crow role. Crow role. Um, and I wish that we got a little bit more out of him. The Corinthian is a character I have not discussed at this point. He is very present in the first half of the season. That being said, he gets really important in the second half. In the first half, 
you we're just checking in with him here and there. He's doing a little bit uh, to hurt Dream. He's kind of uh, dropping breadcrumbs to anyone who could be considered Dream's antagonist. And I do think that the portrayal for this character is one of the best in the series. I've heard varying thoughts on this on this character, but I think he just killed it. The actor is named Boyd Holbrook. So he plays basically a dream, almost like he kind of mirrors what Satan is in the Bible, typically. Um, he plays a dream that has decided to leave the kingdom of dreams. I guess he's actually a nightmare at first, and he's chosen to live within the regular world. He 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 himself dreams for a life different than what he's been dealt from dream, <laughs> the Lord of dreams, to be specific. Um, so in that way, he's actually quite compelling because he really just desires freedom. Now, where that where that oversteps its boundaries, he starts doing heinous acts within the real real world. There's even a convention of terrible people that all get off to killing and doing gruesome acts of horror that all look up to him. So if that's their watermark person to look up to, you can imagine how much damage he's done in the real world. And his his whole deal is he wants he wants Dream dead because in Dream if Dream dies then he can kind of make a a new world in his own image so to speak. I do just think that his presence was just delicious. He's like a, a mustache twirling villain. He has so much charisma. He's like hot and he's seducing people left and right. And the way that he carries himself himself on screen, I think that he did a great job stepping in as like the de facto antagonist for this entire series. Now, getting into the second half of the series plotline, we're introduced to a character named Rose, and Rose is actually a dream vortex. That's uh, not explained too in depth why this happens. It's supposed to be a random natural occurrence, but she's a vortex for everyone's dreams. So in the dream world, when everyone goes to sleep, she's essentially sucking everybody into these dreams, combining their dreams and uh, wreaking chaos within the dream world. Of course, she has no autonomy over this. This is just what's happening by her mere existence. So for Dream and the citizens of Dream World, it's kind of uh, pertinent to them that they uh, attack her. Uh, they end her life even. So they, they're closely monitoring her to make sure that they make the right call. All the while, the Corinthian is on the other side of things trying to create a scenario where they use her to bring, bring upon the downfall of Dream, the Lord of Dreams. Now, where this plotline gets really compelling, especially in the first episodes like seven and eight, the first few episodes that were introduced to these characters, is the family plotline that they sit us down with. I found this full on like difficult to watch at points. They they depict a scenario where Rose and her much younger brother are caught between a situation where their dad is very abusive and terrible. Then them and their mom are trying to run away, but. The dad puts his foot down and keeps the son and then cuts off any communication between their family and the son. Uh, very terrible, I know. And eventually the son even ends up a part of the foster care system and ends up being given to an even worse dad figure in his life. So we, we actually get a lot of time from the son's point of view. It's worth saying that Rose and Jed, the son, are black characters. And I do think that's a layer that's present, especially for Jed in his solo plotline here, he's essentially being abused. He's being locked in a cellar. He's being starved. He's being bitten by rats. He's being beaten on a regular basis. His de facto mother figure is a positive one, but she's equally um, in fear of and being abused by her husband as well. You know, if she goes too out of line, she'll be right down there in the cellar with Jed. 
And so there's not much that she can do. This was ter- this was really painful to watch. I had it like even it was it was well done. I mean, it was effective in communicating the horror of his situation. Um but as a viewer, I I at times I really just wasn't enjoying this as a piece of media fiction. I again, I I do think it was compelling and, and very effective, but for a fantasy world, you know, this is fantasy. Uh I do think there's ways of depicting this level of cruelty without lingering on it so long. Um, maybe for some people that's really good. For me, I just wish that it was a little dialed back. I I just don't think it's fun to watch a kid deal with this much suffering and this much, this terrible villain in his life. Uh, of course, the Corinthian ends up killing those parents and taking the son to a debatably even scarier situation. I mean, this kid really just suffers and suffers constantly throughout the series. I, it's I, I do think the actor for Jed was doing a pretty good job, and he somehow remains fairly upbeat and hopeful, especially as soon as he gets out of that scenario. You think that he would be a little bit more taken aback after all the terrible suffering he's had to go through. But, you know, watching the plight of Rose desperately try to find her brother and, and, and just know that he's in peril and eventually overcome that and they reunite and, you know, they're able to f- uh, carve out a happy ending for themselves that it did remain very hopeful. So um, overall, they did stick the landing, and I feel very endeared towards these characters. Again, I think that these kids just did a really good job. Now, through the lens of Rose, we get introduced to a cast of side characters that are like her new friends. It's It almost feels like we're in like a backdoor pilot type situation, and they do a lot to try to firmly establish these characters right towards the end of the season. It, it's it, So she's staying at like a hotel i guess it's not a hotel it's just like a place that a guy owns he's just a tenant there and they're all whimsical and uh, uh you know all over the spectrum in terms of sexuality and presentation they're all really nice and they immediately welcome her into their home as if she is just one of them they're all very endeared to her story and will do anything to help her out it was interesting to establish these characters because on one hand i do find them charming i think that there is a strong charisma and chemistry with all those characters and the way that they take care of Rose there's a sweetness to it um I just don't know that there was a place for all of these characters to be in the season like are we going to see these characters again in season two is Rose sticking around I can't really see a reason for any of them too but they've done such a strong job of establishing them and establishing this world and this chemistry between them all that you think that they were planning to do more with them are we going to get a spinoff with them I mean that sounds kind of interesting I I just don't know it's it, it it just seems like an odd choice to give them so much attention towards the end when they're relatively unimpactful to the overall narrative. They just provide a world for Rose to kind of exist in and give her something to breathe through that isn't just following Jed the whole time. So I don't know. That was a little bit odd, but it still was enjoyable. Like even though I do think it's a little out of place, I did still enjoy seeing those characters on the screen. So I guess they they still pulled it off pretty well. So the main conflict at hand during this plot line is that Dream is planning on killing Rose. The Corinthian wants to use Rose to bring about uh, absolute destruction, and all Rose wants to do is find her brother and make sure he's safe. Now, eventually, Corinthian is starting to manipulate Rose, telling him that Dream probably wants her dead, and so that kind of puts her at odds against Dream at some point. But by the end, once Rose can see that her being a vortex is actually causing suffering and could be the destruction of the world that she lives in and the people that she loves, she does accept her fate and is willing to die. Rose is a cool hero character. I really do like her. Now, 
the solution to this is that her great-great-grandma finds out that she was supposed to be the Vortex all along and kind of reclaims that Vortex title, if that makes sense, and therefore sacrifices her own self in order for Rose to live. Now, this again, this is what I alluded to earlier. Dream doesn't make the decision here. Dream doesn't, like, give us the answer to the scenario. He just is around, and the grandma just provides this answer, and he's like, okay, that's fine with me. You're dead now, and everyone can just live happily ever after, you know? It's not like he, you know, even though he's the main character of the series, he was really just a plot device to get to this compelling story, to, to get Rose to this place, and then we can move forward from there. Um, again, just a little bit lackluster. I like everything leading up to it. Like everything was super compelling. I don't know like what the answer is going to be. I'm like, I don't see how they're going to avoid having to kill Rose, even though that's not what I want to do because they, the, with the level of attention that they give to Rose, she becomes like the main character. Like you would think that like half of the story is being told from her point of view and you're very endeared towards her, which is also another reason why I think she might come back in season two, but now that she's been stripped of her vortex status, I just don't know that she has any place or has anything to do within the series anymore. So yeah, I don't know. I like her. I would welcome her back with open arms if they wanted to bring her back for season two. But as of this moment, I think that that, that plot line is done. But yeah, again, just to put a bow on it, I, I really do like the individual parts of these series. I, do, I, I might appreciate the first part a little more because it was a lot more simple in its presentation it was a lot less characters as well, and it was a little bit more straight to the point. That being said, I found myself much more engaged with the second part, even though it was a little less neat. I feel like there it was a little bit more all over the place. And I overall, if these were two individual seasons or just two individual stories in a vacuum, I do love them great. I just don't know. It, they, there's just such a sense of disjointedness seeing them played out both in season one. You know, they do use the Corinthian throughout to kind of string it all together as one overarching plot, but in 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 reality, it doesn't play out that way. One character I didn't mention was actually Lucifer. We see her in, I think, episode two or three. I think it might be two, but uh, she's played by a female. This is actually the same actress of Brienne of Tarf from Game of Thrones, that super large, like, knight character, female, you know? Um she does a really good job in this series. I think that her look as Lucifer is really compelling. She has, and I like her, like, detachedness that she doesn't feel necessarily, like, evil or good, except for, like, at the end of her episode, they do, like, make a turn with her and, like, make her a little bit more unhinged again. And then when we get a small tag with her at the end of the season to kind of tease a season two with her, they make it seem like she's about to like cause like absolute chaos and that she like hates dream or whatever. I didn't, I didn't get that read on her when they first introduced her character. And I really like her as more of a neutral character, someone who can be terrifying, but also be your friend. It's just given the circumstances, you know, someone who is like chaotic neutral, I guess. If they lean into that direction with the character, I think that she'll read really well as an outright antagonist to dream. I don't know if I'm really sold on her in that, in that role. But I am excited to see that, you know, we do touch, we, we get an episode that touches into a depiction of hell and the way that they use her at the end of this episode, I can only imagine that she will be a larger part of the storytelling moving forward. They also chime in with Desire. Desire is his little brother and 
it's kind of implied that Desire is really the one pulling the strings all along here. He actually was technically like the great grandfather of Rose. Okay, so I guess Rose could still be around because genetically speaking, she's a child of the endless. That is what Dream says. And, you know, to get into the the lore here, <laughs> Desire just came into the human world and basically had sex with, with Rose's great-great-grandmother and essentially set into stone these events to create this whole vortex situation. So I guess, so it sounds like there is a way that Rose and Jed do come back into the fold in some way. So I'd be excited to see how that plays out. Um, Desire, they, they check in with him a couple times throughout the series and he really does pop off screen. Like his presence that they present with Desire is like mesmerizing and his lair that he lives in that's like velvet liquidy red everywhere I do find him very uh, intantalizing. Like, uh, it's it's sexy, it's dreamy, and it's very um, it's very nefarious at the same time. He's kind of like a cat, if that makes sense. But uh, so it seems like they're going to use him a lot more moving forward. Even though the capacity that they use him to, he's very forgetful. Even though he does have a strong presence, you just don't know what his motives are. You don't really know what he's up to. So yeah, he kind of he kind of goes to the background a little bit. But yeah, I did briefly mention that Dream does have a very strong character arc. By the end of the season, he's he's handing out apologies and he's he's actually changing up his style of doing things for the first time. And it seems like he's listening to the people around him in a much more profound way. I like his character a lot when they let him be soft a little bit. He was super endearing. I don't know. Uh, this series really did a good job of making me fall in love with their characters. Again, I don't think that this series is perfect by any means. Uh, there are a lot of weird decisions, and they they really swing for the fences. I will say, visually, this series popped greatly. Um, I know that the series had a crazy budget. I'm pretty sure I read that it was 15 million per episode, which is like crazy level, like Game of Thrones tier stuff. And when you're watching it, it's not that it's not that they're doing anything super crazy. They're not blowing your mind with the animation. They're very consistent with it, and they they they're making it feel dreamy. I mean a lot of sequences outright just take place in the dream world for obvious reasons but even when they're just in the real world i like that they use they they don't overplay their hand with their animation budget i guess is what i is what i'm trying to say they they dial it in a little bit even though there is a lot of animation like happening on screen they dial it in and they don't overdo it and so it feels just well done like there's there aren't moments where i'm like oh that's a ridiculous like cgi blast you know they, they, I just think that they do a good job of blending it and creating it subtle enough, but it is still very beautiful. Like, I do think that visually this is a really great series and they did a good job of having a consistent tone and really feeling like it's its own distinct world and like fandom, I guess you could say. But yeah, I think that's just about going to bring this conversation to a close. You know, I, I ended up having a lot more to talk about with Sandman than I thought I would. I thought that this would be a much quicker conversation. But yeah, have you seen Sandman? What do you think about it? Were you able to get through it or was it just a little too weird for you? And if you made it this far into the review, thank you so much for listening. I do appreciate it. I love feedback, so send me up with some feedback, guys. I'm on TikTok and Instagram at The Darius Show, and you can hit me up on my email at thedshowpod at gmail.com. That is T-H-E-D-S-H-O-W-P-O-D at gmail.com. Hit me up, guys. Let me know what you think. Let me know what you want me to talk about, and I would really appreciate any feedback on how I can present this all better to you. 
But again, if you made it this far, thank you so much. This has been The Sandman Discussion. Thank you, and I love you.